You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. David, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, Is not David hiding among us? Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Strangers are attacking me. Ruthless men seek my life. Men without regard for God. Selah. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. I wonder what you do when you despair, because all of us in this building will despair at some point or other. Some of us seem to live in a constant flux of despair and moderate despair and then real despair again. Everyone when will be faced with trouble and it doesn't make any difference whether people are Christian or not, whether they will be faced with trouble. But this psalm is a song that teaches us who we can run to when we are in trouble. Who would we go to? If you are, um, you're growing up in a home and it's a loving home and your parents care for you, you get in a, a difficulty, that's who you go to for help. You've got a really good friendship you're older and you have developed a a mature and strong friendship. You go to that person for help. But here, David is talking about the ultimate help that we can receive. So, we're going to look at it. Uh, Calvin says that this psalm is written to teach us that we should never despair of God's help, even in the worst situations. Never despair of God's help, even in the worst situations situations. It's a song that's a lament, a lament that is to be sung with stringed instruments. Um, We like singing the psalms a cappella, but it would be nice to have uh, one or two more uh, accompanied psalms. People, uh, those of you who can write tunes and think about (coughs) things that would fit, um, you know, you sing a lament with a musical instrument and it can be very, very powerful, as well as doing it a cappella. And it's a song that is written in a situation that we know exactly what it is. If you go back to 1 Samuel and chapter 23, uh, it's on page 296, and we'll read from verse 13. 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 13. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Kaliah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kaliah, he did not go there. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. 
You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father's soul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakilah, south of Jeshimon? Now, O king, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for handing him over to the king. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and make further preparation. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you. If he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon in the Arabah south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search. And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went out to meet the Philistines. That is why they called this place Selah Hamakelethoth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. David, it's kind of everything is going wrong for him. He has to go away from Saul, who's trying to kill him. Saul, the king whom he serves. Saul, his own king. And he goes down to the far south of Judah, to a small town uh, south of Hebron, to a group called the Ziphites. And he expected them to uh, at least uh, keep him there. But he was surrounded by hostile forces. He was hemmed in on every side. He was trapped on the side of this mountain, later on trapped in a cave. How could he get out of this? And I think what must have really hurt him was that his own people turned against him. He says here, strangers are attacking me. Ruthless men seek my life. Men without regard for God. They slander him. Let evil recoil on those who slander him. And he's saying that these people are strangers, but they're not. They're not aliens. They're not foreigners. They're not people who David wouldn't have known. They were his own people, but they were acting like strangers. They were acting like aliens. They were, they were acting as though he didn't matter. He didn't count. They were ruthless in what they were doing. And he uses this most interesting phrase, At the end of verse 3, they are men without regard for God. Ruthlessness, slander, lying, deceit. Where there is no regard for God, there is a lack of humanity. Psalm 53 is the one that repeats Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 53 is about practical, theoretical atheism. Psalm 54 is practical atheism. They have no awareness of God. They have no regard of God seeing them. They are more concerned about Saul, whom they can see, than God, 
whom they cannot. It's what we would, it's what's called impiety, the lack of piety, the lack of godliness, the lack of God awareness. And surely, my greatest need and your greatest need is to be aware of God, to live in the Latin phrase, coram Deo, to live in the presence of God, honoring God, practicing the presence of God. David found himself in the midst of a people who were religious, who had the word of God as it was then, who had the law of God as it came through Moses, and yet they lived as if they were no God. They were not aware of God seeing them. These are men who have no regard for God. Now, we read in 1 Samuel that Saul says to them, may the Lord bless you for what you have done. And I think that's a tremendous warning for us that we need to be very careful about how we use God's name and seeking God's blessing. It is a tremendously hard thing to have people, your own people, people in your own community, people in your own church, people in your own nation, attacking you in the name of God. I think when I think of this, and we're we're coming to take communion, I think of Christ, how he was slandered, how he was backed into a corner, how he was assaulted by the evil one, how his life was on the line, and how he reacted in the same way as David did. Because you'll see what David does, and <clears throat> I think this is where we go for help. Very simply, he, he, he prays, Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Extraordinary circumstances require extraordinary help. And for David, this is a fervent prayer. He's got nothing left. He can't win this battle physically. If Saul with his bigger army is against him, if the people who he's gone to shelter with are betraying him, where can he go? What can he do? He's left in complete despair. He's left with nothing except prayer. And surely that is is the same for us, that prayer is our greatest weapon. When all other weapons prove useless, we always have prayer. And there's so much misunderstanding about prayer. Again, think of Christ in Gethsemane. Think of Christ on the mountain as well as in the garden. Think of how Jesus so needed to pray. And I think particularly in Gethsemane, he was in so much trouble He needed to pray. We, as a fellowship, need to think about our prayer lives, not in terms of prayer as as kind of stocking up credit with God, but more prayer because we recognize the desperate situation that we are in. We have a a wee prayer meeting on a Saturday morning. And honestly, just to come down for 20, 30 minutes and to pray, 
it's really wonderful. It sets you up for the day. Uh, I would encourage you to think about doing that. And you can do it then. What about a Sunday morning? Have you ever, on a Sunday morning, have you ever come into church and you're, you're all frazzled and hassled and, you know, you just need an extra half hour or hour to get ready or things just aren't, you know, you, and you come in and you can't settle and then by the time you begin to get into the sermon, it's over or it drags and you get nothing out of it anyway. And you go, well, you think, well, why did I bother with that? Can I suggest something to you that's very simple? Prepare yourself in prayer. Now, do that at home if you can. But just plan to come half an hour earlier and go into the wee prayer meeting and just sit and be still and know that God is God. Or let me put it even in another just simpler way. Come five minutes earlier, sit in your chair. Sure, say hello to the people around you, but you're here to meet with God. So just sit and block out whatever's going on around you. You can do that. And just pray. Just ask the Lord to be with you. Please don't wait in terms of prayer until you are so desperate that you've got nothing else left. Christ came to open up the avenue to God in prayer. And David knew that. And he, he, he cries out to God in this lament, in this song, hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. And he describes his situation. But you'll notice what he does. He calls on the name of the Lord. What's significant about that? We, we live in a culture where names, in one sense, are not so important. At least, we, we like to think so. But we need to think about it a wee bit more. The name of God is God's revelation to us of who He is. So, Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. Yahweh, Jehovah. What is your name? That's why blasphemy is so wrong. Why? Has anyone ever... Do you ever think about this? Why? I, I don't get this. Why is Jesus Christ used as a swear word? I heard somebody ask this this week, and I thought it was a really good question. Would you ever get on a BBC comedy show someone using Mohammed as a swear word? Not a chance. Can you think of any other historical figure who's used as a swear word? Do any of you walk around and go, oh, Napoleon? Oh, Hitler? You, I mean, you wouldn't. So why is Jesus Christ used as a swear word? I can't think of any other person in history whose name is used as a swear word. I mean, I knew one guy who used to use his mother's name, which was Nora. He used to say, oh, Piggy Nora. I mean, that was just really just weird. But why is Jesus Christ used as a swear word? Why is God used as a swear word? It's a spiritual thing. Because the name of the Lord is powerful. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the more that God's name can be abused and twisted and misused. You see, we all say, yeah, yeah, murdering someone is wrong. But you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why is that wrong? That's a bit precious, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's very precious. God's name is precious. God's name is holy. God's name is what we have. 
when David calls on the name of the Lord, he's invoking God's presence. He's asking God to be with him. And I think there's extraordinary faith here. He's trapped, and yet he sees God as his helper. How can he speak of God being near him? His enemies are near him. They're the ones who are about to get him. His enemies act like atheists because they only see Saul. David doesn't see only his enemies. He sees God. I think in the New Testament of the story of Stephen, the first martyr, who as he is being stoned to death, as there are people around him whose faces are full of hatred, as the blood is pouring down his face, as he is dying, he looks up and he sees Jesus. In your troubles, if you see only your troubles, if you see only your enemies, if you see only your problems, it's horrific. But if you see God, if you call on the name of God, and God reveals himself to you, then what a difference. He sustains David. He saves David. Again, we saw this morning about this idea of the heart being enlarged. Here, there's an idea of David being squashed in and being pressured and being embattled, and God comes and he broadens it. He sets him in a large place. The pressure needs to be relieved, and his enemies are destroyed because this is a spiritual battle. It's not just a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. And as Christians, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. I don't know why, but I mean, the Kindle's great, and I just, uh, I hadn't read for a while C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. I'd so recommend it to you. Um, It takes a little bit of getting into the first ones, Out of the Silent Planet and uh, Perilandra and uh, That Hideous Strength. But I've just, just about finished reading all three of them. And it never struck me before. Whatever C.S. Lewis had, he absolutely knew what spiritual warfare was because he describes it overwhelmingly. There is no doubt at all that he had some awareness and understanding and experience of spiritual forces of evil and angels, spiritual forces of good. I think when you've had that, you find it much easier to ask God to destroy your enemies, because your enemies, not flesh and blood, your enemies are those who would seek to pervert and destroy and kill. He prays, calls on the name, asks God to save him, asks God to destroy his enemies. And then he makes a promise. He says, I will sacrifice. I will praise the name. I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. Now, what this is not doing, it's not David coming and saying, okay, God, you do this, then I will do this. If you do this, I'll I'll make a bargain with you. I think it's David having faith in the name. I think he's saying that God stands by his name And he's saying, I'm calling on your name, and when you deliver me, I will praise your name. It won't be by my own strength that I will be saved. He's recognizing that he wants to be able to stand up and bless the Lord and praise the Lord 
from what he has done. I, I, my own belief is that God is working uh, in this church and that there's stuff happening. And I think one of the main signs of that will be this, that we end up praising God and not one another. That we are just amazed at the graciousness and the goodness and the wonder and the beauty of God. When Sinclair was going through uh, the first chapters of Genesis, one of the things that struck me in, in terms of the spiritual battle that goes on there between the devil and trying to call mankind, to, to get mankind into that position where we turned away from God, is that the devil always wants us to question the goodness of God. I, I spend a lot of time discussing with people who, who will say, well, there's no absolute right and wrong, there's no absolute good, and then they'll say, I don't believe in God because he's not good. And you say, well, wait a minute, I thought there was no absolute right and wrong, there's no absolute good. Because they know that there's a good they know that there's evil. They know all these things, but what they really want to say is they're trying to say God is evil. The absolute core and foundation of our Christian faith is surely this. You, O oh Lord, are good, and you are the giver of good. God can do nothing evil. We might look at something and say, well, that looks evil. And then we, well, then we have to turn it and say, well, okay, Maybe we're not seeing it right. Maybe we've just got the wrong perspective. But God cannot do anything evil. The devil has you once you start thinking that God can do things that are evil. He's got you. You can never trust him. If you think that an all-powerful God can do evil things, then you live in hell. You live in despair. But he can't. He can't. The absolute goodness of God is as essential as the existence of God. And David knows that. And that's why he asks for God's presence. And that's why the old um, Scottish writer, David Dixon, minister, says this, there is more joy in God's felt presence than grief in felt trouble. I'll say that again. There's more joy in God's felt presence than grief in felt trouble. You ever had that paradox where you feel the trouble, you feel the pain, you're under pressure, you're struggling with discouragement, you're struggling with doubt and fear and depression and despair. And you can't imagine what could overcome that. And what Dixon says is this, but the felt presence of God is more joyful than the felt presence of trouble. The comfort of God outweighs the hate of his enemies. And I go back to Stephen, and I think of Stephen, and I don't deny that he was in pain, but I do believe that he was protected in some way, and above all, that the comfort of God outweighed the hate of his enemies. Why did Jesus go to Gethsemane? Not to bargain with God. He went to Gethsemane to be given strength, and he prayed and he sweated. And at the end, he was comforted and strengthened by angels. The comfort of God outweighs the hate of your enemies. Sometimes you will look and the situation you are in is so oppressive. 
Sometimes you will have experienced the bitterness and the hatred of other people. Sometimes you will be conscious of a spiritual battle. And it absolutely overwhelms you. What you need is to see God and is to see Jesus. And in the midst of that, you grasp, I'm reading, um, Martin Luther's a really, really interesting guy to read. And uh, I'm reading Luther just now. And he had some, some strange views about the devil, I think, or strange expressions, let's put it that way. But he absolutely knew what it was to be involved in a spiritual battle. And the most important thing for him was to know the comfort and presence of Christ. He would often argue the devil comes to attack and to destroy and to condemn. And Jesus comes to bring comfort. And I think David in his own way was aware of that. When he says he looks on his enemies, my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes, that very last phrase... What he's not saying, that those are uncomfortable words for us, because they carry this idea of gloating. Ha! They got what they deserved. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, God has preserved me in my life. And we can always observe with satisfaction how God's word always turns out true, and God's judgments are just. So I think about all of that, and I think about what we ourselves experience And I think most of all, as we come to communion, about what Christ has done. Christ is the one who made the sacrifice. He sacrificed the ultimate free will offering. Christ is the one who gave thanks to God. He's the one who battled. He's the one who defeated the devil. He's the one who rose victorious. And he's the one who enables us to give thanks. We take the Eucharist, a thanksgiving. We come having been delivered, and we come in anticipation of deliverance. We take the bread and the wine saying, I'm trusting in what Christ has sacrificed. I'm trusting that God is good. I'm trusting that Jesus, who defeated the devil on the cross, will defeat the devil in every area and aspect of my life. We're saying, I will praise the name. Calvin says this, We are taught by the passage that in coming into the presence of God, we cannot look for acceptance unless we bring to his service a willing mind. We're saying, Lord, I'm going, I come, and in a sense, we are making an offering, not in the the way that in the Roman Catholic Church, you get the priest in the Mass offering up Christ, sacrificing Christ again. That is actually blasphemy that is wrong. Christ was offered once for all. But we, when, when you take communion, you are kind of giving a sacrifice. You're giving a, you are giving a sacrifice of thanksgiving, but you're also saying, I will praise the name. And we're coming with a willing mind and a willing heart. Psalm 86 says this, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. 
I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love towards me. You've delivered me from the depths of the grave. The arrogant are attacking me, O God. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, men without regard for you. That sounds familiar because Psalm 86 is a composite of different parts of the Psalms and this part, Psalm 54. Men without regard for you are attacking me, but you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. They are fierce. They are ruthless. They are attacking And you are compassionate and gracious. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, O Lord, have helped and comforted me. You want a sign of God's goodness. It's there in the bread and the wine. It's there in what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that as David cried out to you in the midst of the utmost distress and despair and physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual pressure, he could still call on your name and do so knowing that he would praise your name because your name reveals who you are. You are God. You are the deliverer. You are our Savior. You are Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins. Lord, we ask for a sign of your goodness, and you give it to us. This bread and this wine are that sign. Lord, help us as we share together in it. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.